Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you today, including the wildfire state of emergency continuing, the evacuations, the travel restrictions. We'll talk about the tourism economy in the Okanagan and elsewhere in the wildfire zone, hammered by the wildfires. Lots of cancellations all over the place. I was following a, a Reddit thread of a young couple in Kelowna, their dream summer wedding they had planned this for months of course canceled because of the travel restrictions now and now they are scrambling to find a different venue to save their dream wedding after it was canceled in Kelowna so we'll talk about a tourism industry that's just getting battered by the wildfires right now also on the wildfires file the situation in shoe swap including those locally organized supply lines these are being organized on Facebook, of people trying to bring in food, water, gasoline by boat, including to properties that are not under an evacuation order, and they're being blocked and told not to do that. We'll talk about that on the show today, too. Got more up for you on that, on that topic. Also on today, okay, at the bottom of this hour, think about this now. We are in a difficult economy right now especially the price of housing, rent has gone through the roof, food prices in the grocery store are ridiculous. But here's the question for you this morning here. Is this economy especially unfair to young people? Is this economy rigged against young people? You may have seen the trend on social media, young people, especially in Vancouver, posting messages on Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, some of them very moving, powerful People almost reduced to tears because forget about buying a condo. They can't afford that. I'm talking about finding a place to rent. They, they can't afford to move out of their parents' house. Talk about that today on the show as well. So we have all that. We have lots more. But first, we start with the wildfires and especially its impact on the tourism economy. I've got Ellen Walker Matthews standing by to discuss first. Have a listen to this report. You're going to hear Global News reporter Grace Key here. You'll also hear from British tourist Sharon Hargroves. Have a listen. One of the province's worst wildfire seasons is getting worldwide attention. BC's reputation as an outdoor playground is one of our most important brands in the international market and that may be in jeopardy. And I think people may take into account maybe coming earlier in the year before the wildfire season. My heart goes out to the people, you know, our holiday is second to their lives, etc. out there. But yes, it's a bit disappointing. Okay, a bit disappointing for tourists. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ellen Walker-Matthews. Ellen is the CEO of the Thompson Okanagan Tourism Association. Very pleased to welcome Ellen to the show. Ellen, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. Let's talk about the impact of the wildfires and the travel restrictions that we're seeing right now. What are you hearing from the tourism sector in the, in the region? Man, there's got to be a lot of cancellations going on here. Well, I guess, you know, first of all and foremost, we, all, we want to recognize the fact that a lot of people are, are affected. And, and people that have lost their homes, our hearts go out to them. As an industry, we, we know that people are displaced, they're evacuated. So that is paramount in our mind all over the region. And as you've said, Earlier, that's happening in the Shushwap, it's happening in Kelowna, it's happening south of where I live in, in Oliver, in that area. So yeah. it's been an interesting time for all those people. 
certainly our industry is is being affected. Our 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 hotels since the order on Saturday are empty. They're available for evacuees. We are seeing some, but we're not seeing a tremendous amount of them yet. Um, but we are, you know, the industry has come to the table and done what was asked of them to make sure that our accommodation is ready for those people that need a place to stay. Okay, so for hotels out there, if they are receiving cancellations from people who are canceling their vaca- vacations, they're not giving them any trouble with that, right? They get a, are you hearing, like, people are getting refunds, right? That's what we are hearing. People are yeah. getting refunds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hotels are really trying to make sure that they're, you know, it's our reputation on the line here, Mike, as well. So yeah. We want to people want to come back here when the time is right, when the order is lifted, and when we have something again to offer, which hopefully will be September. Okay, it's interesting to hear you say that some of these rooms are sitting there empty. You'd think they'd be overflowing now with people who have been evacuated, or that's not happening? So far, we have not seen that happen. Uh, I know that, you know, even, for example, in in Kamloops, the hotels are sitting at about 20% occupancy right now, so there's lots of room for evacuation. A lot of people are going to family and friends. Some people have a second home to go to. You know, there's many options of which accommodation in tourism is one of them. And we're certainly, we're ready for that. And if that continues to flow in, that's great. Uh, the hotels are ready all up and down the valley. Okay, so if the hotels there are sitting there 80% empty, do you think the travel ban was the right thing to do, though? I don't think this is the time to know that, Mike. I think in the future, when we review what took place, I think there would be lots of discussion on but about what should and shouldn't happen. I think there was concern at the time. Uh, Friday and Saturday were certainly horrific days. I was I was here in the Okanagan, in the Kelowna area, so I know what was being broadcast and seen, and it was certainly yeah. frightening. Uh, so I think we have to come back and look at that. And, you know, I think we can't help but know that Lahaina and Maui and what took place there was on everybody's mind. So I think... Yeah. Um, was it an overreaction? We don't know that right now. We just have to go with what we have and do the best we can to help the people that need it and and then make sure that when the time is right, we're open for business and we're inviting visitors back and that they will come and support you know, our entrepreneurs, our small business operators. This is very hard on all of them, yeah. not just the operators. How long, when would you like to see the travel restrictions lifted? Like if this drags on, I guess the longer it drags on, the bigger the the impact on on your people, like the tourism businesses that are affected here, would you like to see the tour the travel ban lifted sooner rather than later? We, you know, we will follow the order of the province. So when yeah. when the minister feels that it's time to lift it, uh, but I know they're coming out to the region today to look at things. Um, we know that there's been many evacuation orders rescinded, so people are getting back into their homes. Right. I can actually see the sky where I live today, which is really exciting. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll leave it in the hands of, of Minister Ma, but I think that uh, she's coming out with the Premier, and it would be good for them to evaluate the situation and see if something could change sooner. Speaking to Ellen Walker-Matthews, Thompson Okanagan Tourism Association. So, We've, we've talked a little bit about the short-term outlook here. What about longer-term? Like, it was interesting to hear in that global news report we played there, uh, at least one British tourist saying that, well, maybe people will start to time their visits here. So if they're not coming in the summer months, if they're worried about wildfires, maybe they'll come in the spring or the fall instead. Are you seeing any trends like that? Are you worried about the summer season here going forward? 
You know, I've been in the I've been in the region for 31 years. We've certainly seen a, a fair share of crisis, but crisis is worldwide now, Mike. So I think people, you know, they're they're making decisions based on what's happening in the immediate future, and and I think people are adjusting. Uh, we certainly also try to help accommodate tourists. So if something's going on here in British Columbia at one area, it doesn't mean everybody's affected. So trying to move people around, uh, I think it's a it's a long term. Uh, holistic approach that we have to look to a problem that it needs to be addressed by all of us and it's it's certainly not just a british columbia issue yeah yeah like you said we've seen plenty of regions where we've had wildfire crises uh is so you don't think that this is necessarily giving british columbia's reputation um a a, a bad look on the international market right now i don't think so mike i mean i certainly yeah. hope communications are what will save us in terms of our reputation management. I think people want to know what's happening. They want the truth. They want honesty. And we've been trying to really do that. Um, and I think, you know, saying now's not the time to come, but we welcome you back when it's safe to do so. And I think making sure that, that those messages are clear. I know our DBC team in Vancouver have been talking to the international tour operators and keeping them apprised of what's going on. So I think it's all about how you handle the situation. It, the crisis, I think, around the world, they're going to happen now. We just have to be prepared and understand how to, how to deal with them when they're happening. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right, let's talk about this difficult economy here right now. You've got the price of housing has gone up dramatically. The price of rents, rents have gone through the roof. Price in the grocery store for food is ridiculous. Now, here's the question now. Is this economy especially unfair to young people? Is this economy rigged against Young people, especially the price of housing. When you take a look at the rapid rise in home prices and rents, too. Like, I'm not even talking about buying a condo. A lot of people can't afford that. Even rents have gone crazy. The increase in home prices and the increase in in rentals has far outpaced the increase in income. So this is the income affordability gap. And... This is what's getting a lot of young people down. Now, you may have seen this on this trend on social media. So these young people, especially in Vancouver, are posting messages on Instagram, TikTok, some of them very moving and powerful. You know, in some cases, you got young people almost reduced to tears because they can't afford to move out. They're feeling stressed out by the price of groceries. And we're going to talk about this here in this segment. i got Dylan Kruger standing by. But first, have a listen. This is what I'm talking about, okay? So have a listen to this. This is sort of some of the voices you're hearing of young people on social media on this stuff. Have a listen. I have $70 worth of groceries on my table right now, and I genuinely don't even know what I purchased that made it to $70. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24 and I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like you need $700,000 plus to even get a half decent home. I feel so utterly stuck. 
you go to school, you get a degree, and you're still not guaranteed a job. 60k a year that used to be like a decent amount of money not anymore i was telling my parents like it's just so frustrating that like you do all the right things you go to university and then you come out you get a job whatever and you can barely afford rent okay so this is what i'm talking about we're seeing a lot of those type of messages being posted online for young people especially in the city and in our province who are really really frustrated and feeling some despair in this economy let's discuss it now with my guest dylan kruger delta city councillor very pleased to welcome him back to the show dylan thanks a lot for coming on mike thank you for having me hey dylan i always enjoy talking to you about these topics because you're a young guy yourself you're one of the youngest sort of municipal councillors around so so let's talk about that when you hear those voices of young people there what goes through your mind uh, it's heartbreaking to hear these stories and unfortunately i do hear them a lot as a younger member of my council i just seem to get a lot of these calls i get you know without exaggeration at least a, a, you know one or two of these calls a week from people in my community who think hey maybe i know something are you aware of any leads on you know a place to rent a, a place to buy anything that's somewhat reasonable and people are in a catch 22 because the employment the high paying employment jobs are here in metro vancouver so if they can't live here they you know they go out to the island or up north well you know they can't find the jobs up there right so people are really struggling i think uh, the inflation that we've seen over the last couple of years has really exasperated existing trends 8% inflation last year. I don't know many people that got an 8% raise last year. Um, yeah. So it is a generational crisis, right? And if you look at some of the historical data, you were talking about the, the wage gap. In yeah. 1976, it took the average Canadian five years of full-time work to save up for a 20% down payment on a single-family home in this region. Today, it would take that same Canadian with the same average pay close to 30 years, three decades, to save up for a, a down payment on a single-family home. So I know people say, you know, it's always been tough for young people. We've always had to scrimp and save. It is objectively more difficult today to survive as a young person in this country than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, okay, when you make that argument to to older older people, because, you know, sometimes I'll hear pe- listeners will say to me, you know, these young people should stop whining. Maybe you should just get a better, get a, work harder, um, cut out some of these luxurious expenses, stop eating out all the time. You know, stop spending money on, stop buying $5 lattes, stop, stop spending all the time spending so much money on your cell phone. The thing is, though, even if you did that, like even if you stopped going out to restaurants or buying coffees or, you know, you got the cheapest cell phone plan around, it still doesn't make up for that gap. I mean, the gap, it looks like almost insurmountable right now from income to housing, right? Uh, it, it's astronomical. I, I had a, a counselor last term make a similar comment to me about scrimping and saving and going without lattes, which uh, I think I did the calculations. If you bought a latte every day, you, you might save uh, $1,000 in a year. So, you know, just do that for 120 years and you might have your down payment. But <laughs> yeah. in terms yeah. of like, here, here's another stat just to show you the, how astronomical the gap is. Uh, these are U.S. statistics, but I think they work North America wide. When baby boomers hit a median age of 35 in 1990, they collectively owned 21% of the wealth uh, in the United States. When Gen Xers, those are folks born between 1965 and 1980, reached the age of 35 in 2008, they own 9% of the nation's wealth. And in 2020, when the oldest millennials were over the age of 40, they owned less than 5%, 4.6% of the nation's wealth. So there, there are objective stats out there. It is, it is um, astronomical, the gap between affordability and what it was in the 1970s and 80s and what it is today. Yeah, those are some great stats, and I I think it really paints the picture of what we're talking about here. Like, when you talk to young people in your community, your friends, like, what kind of stories are you hearing? Because 
a lot of what I'm hearing is like people who are frustrated that they can't move out of their parents' house. You know, they can't afford it. They can't afford. Forget about buying a place. They can't even afford a place to rent. Like, what kind of stories are you hearing? Yeah, and, and these aren't, uh, you know, these aren't just 18-year-olds either, right? I'm talking to people in their, their 20s, their 30s, even their early 40s, who feel like they did everything right, right? They, they went to post-secondary. They went into a lot of student debt to get a good uh, a good degree. They, went, they got a good high-paying job, in some cases a six-figure salary. Sometimes you have, you know, dual-income households. And they're looking... Um, you know, even for places to rent, uh, I, I had uh, somebody call me last week who was looking at a, a one-bedroom in my community in, in Delta. He was one of 28 applicants for a one-bedroom place. I think it was $2,200. And, uh, you know, he didn't even get a call back, right? I mean, people uh, are, are at wit's end. You talk about some of the TikToks that you heard, uh, you know, price of groceries, price of gas. Uh, yeah. That's also why, you know, we've talked a lot before about the need for more housing supply. Also housing that allows people to not need to get into a car and have those extra expenses of gas and insurance for the day-to-day lives because you know it's it's it would be lovely to have that option but for a lot of people you know it's it's a choice between you know am i able to to have a place to live or or, or a car to drive okay so let's talk about some of the answers and you just touched on some of them there so you know when we let's talk housing first of all how do you make housing how do you make rentals more affordable and within reach for people who are you know, typically young people or even older, like you described there, who are, they got a good job, they're making decent bread, but man, some of this stuff is really unaffordable. Is that the answer? Is it a supply side thing? We just need to build more stuff? I mean, wh- where's the guarantee that's going to be affordable, even if we even if we double or triple the housing starts? Well, supply is a significant part of it. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about demand side solutions over the years. We now have a ban on foreign buyers. Before that, we had a tax on foreign buyers. We've got the speculation tax, the vacancy tax, the flipping tax. You know, we, we've taxed the demand side of this thing to death. We've never actually truly seen what it would look like to, to build a real increase in supply of housing. The number of housing starts happening in this country today per capita compared to what was happening 40 or 50 years ago is, uh, is, is it's, not even, it's, it's not even a comparison, right? Uh, we're going to see this fall, it's going to be really interesting when the province puts their legislation forward, requiring uh, every single family lot in D.C. to have up to a fourplex in place. Uh, that's what Vancouver has already done with sixplexes. Portland has done this. Toronto has done this. Los Angeles has done this. Um, so it's it's recognizing the fact that, you know, uh, we have public hearings and you and I have talked about this before, and we have a hierarchy of needs in our community, and we often hear about issues like uh, community character and parking uh, and uh, all these different things. The number one hierarchy of need, in my opinion, is a safe place to live. And we are not building enough safe supply of housing for the existing population in this region and this country, let alone the millions of people that are projected to be coming into these regions in the years to come. Last question for you, then we'll fit in a break and take some calls here. Now, speaking of, of people coming to Canada, we take a look at the very ambitious, aggressive immigration targets in in the country scheduled to rise dramatically here in outlying years here up to half a million new immigrants a year are you are you concerned about that like the number of new people coming here when we don't have like we're not building enough housing where where is everybody supposed to live and it's isn't that going to drive up the price of housing and rents even higher look on the, look to, to be clear we absolutely need the immigration that's coming into this country we're also going to have a massive labor crisis in the decades ahead it's the baby boomer generation continues to retire, and those uh, those jobs, especially in healthcare, 
and education and first responders and, and retail, they need to be filled. So we need those people because we're not producing enough kids as a society. If we were not having immigration, our population would be shrinking. But we are not tying municipal housing targets to federal immigration targets. We can't be accepting 500,000 people a year into the country while major cities are not allowing for anything higher than single-family homes next to major transit centers. That's a policy disconnect. I stopped going out, and um, I, I, I don't even have Wi-Fi anymore. I used to live in downtown, so I moved back home. Half of my paycheck is going into, like, paying off the credit card. It's just ridiculous. Housing is too expensive, food is too expensive, childcare is too expensive. There you go. That's uh, some more of the voices of young people uh, posting on social media about this uh, tough economy we face right now. My guest is Dylan Kruger. We had tons of phone calls here. Michael and Burnaby. Hi, Michael. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Hi. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, my point was that I'm, uh, you know, I'm in my 70s now. But in 1975, I was making $7.50 an hour. I was getting about $1,000 every two weeks on my check, working overtime and everything. But I was skipping nine hundred. You know, and nowadays if you're making two or three thousand dollars, you know they're taking twelve, fourteen hundred dollars on taxes alone with this and that, all these programs. Yeah. And you know, it's just uh, it's just getting out of hand. There's tax everywhere. Tax, no matter where you go, you go outside, it's tax, tax, tax on anything, anything you touch. And the programs that the governments have promised because they want to get elected. Somebody has to pay for all those programs, you know. I mean, it's just, uh, but it's just getting out of hand. I don't know where this is going to go, uh, but it, it is, uh, you know, I mean, if I, you know, I had a family with two kids in 75. My wife didn't work. I worked overtime, but I had more money in my pocket. Yeah. You know, yeah, this is, I, 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 get, I, I get exactly what you're saying. Michael, thank you for the call. And taxes have certainly eaten up uh, a bigger chunk, I think, of people's people's income and that's why i think in the when we get around to another federal election here i think taxes are going to be a, a really key issue here in an election are taxes too high dylan well everything's too high mike uh, I, I don't think uh, i don't think you ever ask someone our taxes uh, no I, I enjoy paying taxes right <laughs> you know but the, the caller is absolutely right i mean the the the, the money today that uh, folks are making in real dollars are less than what their parents did in the 70s and yeah. 80s and i always think of the example of uh the car the the the, uh, the simpsons cartoon uh the simpsons which were based you know 30 years ago uh, lived in a beautiful single family home with with one working parent who worked a minimum wage job at the local factory that was you know the american dream at that time that is not a reality that we've seen in many many years on this continent no no, no. I mean, I've talked to the people who are making like 70, 80 K a year who can't find it, can't find or are struggling. Zena in Burnaby. Hi, Zena. Go ahead. Good morning. Thank Hi. you. And yeah, absolutely right about the taxes. I didn't even <laughs> think of that one. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I have three, three children. And um, it, it makes me almost want to cry when I think about it today because you know, it's a struggle for them. I mean, they can't even, my two daughters can't even get a license because it's shy of $5,000 for insurance for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, and that misses out on, on work as well. And, um, you know, my one daughter lives in a, in a, in a, a room in Port Coquitlam for $950. She travels an hour and a half one way, one way to work. Never mind the transit. Apparently, people love the transit. I think that's expensive, honestly, but <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad today. 
Thank you, Zena, for that. We got lots of calls here. Let's squeeze a couple more in. Stephen and Burnaby. Hi, Stephen. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. And my sure. idea is that we just have to stabilize prices. If if uh, landowner, land, uh, landlords don't know what their costs are going to be every five years, it's really tough. So if we could have in Canada, like they have in the States, a 30-year mortgage and we peg it at, let's say, 3.5%, at least we get price stability. And if we tie a rent bank that's funded maybe by the carbon tax, I hate that tax, anyway, uh, people would have a little bit more stability in their life. Well, okay, thank you for that. Well, I'm not sure we're going to see sort of price controls in, in the country. Mark in Vancouver, squeeze in one more. Mark, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Hi there. Just a quick uh, note. I remember you drive up Nanaimo Street now. I used to see always those little three, four-story buildings that were rentals. My auntie lived in one. It was like a typical basic house, maybe peel and stick, tiles, uh, regular lighting, baseboard heating. I think part of it now is everybody's watching these home and garden networks. They're watching all these shows. Now everybody's going in with travertine tiles, quartz countertops, recessed lighting, perfect laminate flooring, leads programs. I, yeah. think, I think the money is going to add up on that. I think people need basic shelter, housing. My auntie lived in it for her whole life on there. Now I think everything's got to be looking like it could come out of like a magazine <laughs> of interior design. Make thank you. Thank you, Mark. All right, let's talk about issues with crime, drug addiction, homelessness. And here's a really, really interesting angle on it. Check this out. Vancouver criminal defense lawyer Melanie Begalka posting on Twitter the other day. In the space of one week, she heard from three of her clients asking to stay in jail. They didn't say to her, get me out of here, get me out of jail. They want to stay in jail. They asked her to extend, try to extend their time in custody. They were willing to, they didn't want to seek bail. They just want to stay behind bars. They want to stay in jail. Why? Because they've got a place to sleep. They got three regular meals a day. They've got some drug treatment going on in, inside the prison. She said that she found that this was strange, that this is the first time she'd seen something like this all in close succession, three, three people in the space of a, a week, three of her clients. Because people were afraid, of, they were homeless, homeless. They were afraid of drug addiction on the streets as well. They're using drugs. Keep me in jail. At least I've got a roof over my head. I've got something to eat. I can get some drug treatment in jail. Got Kyla Lee standing by to discuss this now. now this is not the first time we, we've seen something like this. Have a listen to Jason Walmsley here. He is a, a Winnipeg man. He is a drug addict. And he, you'll hear him say in this interview how he was actually happy to get put in jail. Have a listen. For me, the crime kind of serves two different purposes. It's not only a, a way to continue using, but it's also a way to end using. Did you want to get busted? It was relief. What was I thinking? I was, 
I was thankful it was over. I was thankful that the using was over. I was thankful that the using was over. If I can get into jail, get away from drugs. Let's discuss this now with Vancouver lawyer Kyla Lee, Yakiman Law. Hi, Kyla. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Kyla, I know this is something you've heard from your, your colleagues as well. You've heard similar situations here. You know, clients who want to stay in jail. They don't want to get out of jail. They want to stay in jail. What do you think of that? Uh, it's not surprising. Um, the conditions for people who are unhoused right now are so poor. Um, lots of municipalities across British Columbia are passing laws to prevent open drug use, which means that for people who are addicted, they're having to take more and more risks of not being found or not being um, uh, not being given overdose treatment support uh, if they are using drugs. And so jail for a lot of people, feels like the safest place where they have access to the most resources. And so they trade their liberty for the ability just to survive. If you're a drug addict, though, presumably you're not using when you're locked up in jail, right? Well, you're not supposed to be using while you're locked up in jail. I mean, I think we all know that, uh, unfortunately, drugs do make their way into jails, and uh, there are access to uh, drugs there, but there are also access to treatment resources, and there are limitations on your ability to access drugs that make it a lot more difficult to be using. Yeah. When you hear about a lawyer who says he's, he'd heard from three clients in a week that they wanted to stay in jail, they actually asked her, can you please try to extend my jail sentence? Three, three clients in a week. Is that surprising to you, that there'd be that many in that short a space of time? It is surprising that it's gotten this bad um, and this quickly. Um, but I mean, the idea that there are that many people who who prefer this to living on the street or prefer this to some of the you know very limited social housing options that are available is not surprising to me. Yeah. What is it like in jail for people? I mean, when you talk to people who've, who spent time behind bars, what do they describe? It can't be a very pleasant place to stay or play, pleasant place to be, but Maybe if you're homeless or you're helplessly addicted to some of these dangerous drugs, maybe it's better than being out. Jails are notoriously in British Columbia overcrowded, especially pretrial centers where people are waiting um, for their trials and waiting for their cases to be heard. So you do have to deal with a large number of people. There are often issues with um, lockdowns, people spending hours and hours in cells, um, waiting for them to be released simply because of an issue with guards or an issue with something coming into uh, the jail that shouldn't be there. But at the same time, you have a bed, you have a roof over your head, you have a structured routine where you're, you know when you're going to get fed, you know when you're going to get to go outside and get some exercise. And you also have a community with the other inmates, provided you're not put into segregation, um, that allows you the opportunity to forge relationships, something that is a lot more difficult when you're unhoused, when you maybe don't have a specific place to stay, especially where cities are removing people from their communities and dismantling um, you know, the, the tent cities and, and uh, the places where people are living and trying to build those communities. Speaking of lawyer Kyla Lee about clients who want to stay in jail. So I'm, I'm taking a look at Melanie Bagalka's t- a tweet here that started this whole thing. She's a Vancouver criminal defense lawyer. And she writes on Twitter, I had three clients this week asking to extend their time in custody. The extreme housing crisis, fear of dangerous drugs on the street, and general lack of resources. It's all real. So that's why she had three clients. She later said three men 
who asked to remain behind bars. Like, as a lawyer, like, you can't go in front of a judge, though, and say, hey, judge, can you please leave my client in jail? He, he, he kind of prefers it inside rather than go outside because he's homeless. Can you keep him in jail? I mean, you can't say that to a judge, can you? I mean, you can, in the yeah. sense that, you know, bail is your right, and because it's a right, uh, it's a right that you can waive. So if you're arrested and uh, you are, um, you know, potentially facing being held in custody, you can consent to remain in custody pending the outcome of your case. Um, when you're sentenced for an offense, you can ask to be sentenced to jail, and a judge can impose a jail sentence, especially if it's a joint submission between counsel, even though it might be outside the norm. Doesn't this show that, I mean, I've talked to people who felt that going to jail was in some ways the best thing that ever happened to them. Like, I, I knew a guy who was homeless and addicted to drugs, and he got clean in jail and was able to turn his life around and, and felt it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Here you have a case where at least one lawyer saying she had three clients in a week want to stay in jail because they felt it was better than being out. What does that say about you know, the services that we have here. We've talked a lot on this show about crime, disorder on the street, mental illness on the street, drug addiction. And we all know it's a crisis, but, you know, where are people supposed, where are people supposed to get help? Like, if you were addicted to drugs, and I've talked to people who, who said that, or you're mentally ill, and then you're told you have to go on a waiting list for services, and the services are not available. Is that what this comes down to? Like, if people are saying, I want to stay in jail because it's safer there for me. Isn't that an indictment of how, how we're treating people who need help, who are mentally ill? Oh, absolutely. This is, yeah. this is a clear indictment of that. If you have people who are, are, are so desperate for help that they're willing to give up their liberty in exchange to get what limited services are available in jail because that's better than what you can get when you have freedom, that says a lot about where the government is dropping the ball in providing access to resources to people who need it most. And it's one of the problems with this sort of, you know, approach to drug decriminalization that we've taken in British Columbia is we've decriminalized the possession of drugs for personal use, but we haven't provided corresponding funding and resources for people to start to get treatment. And so right. we're only putting one piece of the puzzle out there and we're failing a significant portion of the population. Kyla, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is lawyer Kyla Lee with her thoughts on this. Clients who want to stay in jail. They don't want to get out of jail. They want to stay in jail. I had one lawyer in Vancouver say that happened three times in a week. Three of her clients asked her to extend their, their jail terms because they are homeless, because they wanted to get away from drugs on the street. What do you think about that? Phone me on this on the open line, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your, on your cell. Like I said, I knew a guy who told me that going to jail was the best thing that ever happened to him because he was able to get into a drug treatment program in jail and clean up. He was happy he actually went to jail. Then you got the other issue of mental illness, and we've talked a lot about that on the show too, and everybody's seen it untreated mental illness and brain injuries on the street. People who are clearly sick, in trouble. They need help. And there's no place for them to go. This is where we've heard the argument that maybe it was a mistake to shut down an institution like Riverview 
and something like that should be opened up again. Have a listen to Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo, on this point. He thinks that we should reopen some of these institutions. Have a listen. As I say over and over again, no one's asking for a return to, you know, one floor with a cuckoo's nest and nurse ratchet. Yeah. But smaller, secure facilities in communities so that people would have access to their families, to their loved ones, uh, should be the norm for care in our province. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.